Thanks for listening to What's the Big Idea, a class by J.R. Foresteros. Let me know what you think at Facebook, Twitter, or my website, jrforesteros.com. Enjoy the class. Yay! Okay, let's get going tonight. All right. So uh, we talked the last couple of weeks about uh, the symbol of the sea, which was really in the ancient world, you know, a symbol of death and of fear and, and, and ultimately this idea that the world is out to get you, right? That, that uh, and in, in all the, you know, the ancient creation mythologies, uh, the world, our world, our life is a product of divine combat between all of these different gods, right? And so uh, in, in the world surrounding uh, the Jewish people, people were taught that uh, death and pain are basically the, the most basic truth of life. And uh, the scriptures, then we, we looked at how the scriptures actually speak against that and say, no, uh, actually the most basic truth of life is God's divine invitation for life to flourish. And that creation in the, uh, in, in the Jewish scriptures are not a product of combat, but a product of God's uh, just divine command and divine, you know, let there be, and there was, let there be, and there was. So we pull that into today where people don't think that the world was a product of gods fighting each other anymore, right? Most people, at least especially in our culture. And we saw that and actually there is a different script being told today. And that's this sort of, uh, I called it like a hostile indifference to us. That, you know, human, life is an accident, right? And that there's no purpose, there's no meaning. Uh, and so the best you can hope for is just to, you know, have a little bit of fun and make whatever meaning you can before your relatively brief life is over. And we all got real depressed last week, right, if you remember that. Um, but we saw where that mess, I mean, it, it's popping up. It's not really just in, like, the heady philosophers. It's, it's in movies and it's in music. It's, it's all over the place. Uh, probably a lot of places that you wouldn't really expect to find much deep thinking going on. And yet there it was. And so I'm curious, those of you who got a chance to do any of the homework, uh, you know, how, first of all, did you encounter that worldview pretty clearly? And if so, like, you know, how did, how did it make you... How, how did you process that emotionally? And then I'm, what I'm really curious about is how you began to formulate uh, a, a Christian response to that attitude. So who, anyone want to talk about a, a piece of media that they, uh, that they consumed that had that message in it? And Yeah, go ahead. We did the 2001 Space Odyssey. Okay. And it was a lot of that kind of stuff. It's pretty heavy-handed with the, the, the despair there. I mean, you're out in space, and they were going towards a, a goal – and when you get to the, the very end, he's all alone. It's like expecting others to arrive there, and he's the only one that gets there, and he's there until he dies, and then that's it. Yeah. I mean, good. Yeah. Go team. Go team. <laughs> nothing, nothing to look forward to. Yeah. No, no, like, not really much hope. Good. Yeah. Weird thing at the end, which I guess could imply hope, but it's tough to say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Ambiguous at best, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Good. Someone else? Other. Other media, anyone? Um, I know. I know you were really anxious to look at all that stuff. Oh, okay. Smashing pumpkins. What did you think of that? Yeah. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Yep. Very good. <laughs> yes. Mm. Anything else to add to that, Jeannie? Good. Yeah, absolutely. I think that I think that being able to say I understand is is so important, particularly for people like this. Uh, I I don't know if any of you looked at the the blog post on clinic, on depression, struggling with depression. That was one of the links that that I offered to you. Uh, but it's interesting. I I'm not a person who's ever struggled with depression. Um, but I have a couple of very close friends who have and who have talked with me at length about their experience of that. So when I, you know, when I read that blog post, I was like, wow, like I have never, you know, I've never experienced this personally, but this really fits with, you know, the kinds of things that I've, I've heard other people say. And what's interesting about that blog post is it has something, I think it has like 400,000 comments on it or something like that, which is a lot for a blog. Um, and almost all of them are, wow, thank you so much. Oh, I'm so glad someone else feels this way. I don't feel alone now. Oh, you know, and it's 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 those kinds of reactions, you know, which is which is again just fascinating, because how many people never hear someone say "me too" when they're in these situations? Um, and I think, I think particularly as Christians, when we encounter things like this, attitudes like this, we can be so quick to jump to to making it all better because it feels so gross, it feels so icky, it feels so uncomfortable that we skip past the me too thing. And oftentimes before someone who's in this place can begin to imagine that things could be better, they they need to hear that some that they're not a freak, that they're not alone, that they're, you know, and and I, again, I, 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 we, we talked about this a little bit with Job's friends, right? I mean, that's, they come in, and for seven days they're silent, and that's really good. And then when they start talking, they, they, they skip right past me too and start saying, well, this is how it's your fault, or this is how you can fix it, or, you know, whatever. And, and there, there's, no, you know, there's no solidarity in that. And so I think, I think as Christians, it's important for us to be able to be okay with being uncomfortable, you know, and not immediately have to rush in to try to fix things. Because the process of healing is not uh, a flip switch or a button push, right? I mean, anyone who's ever been sick knows that. You don't just push the get well button and you're well. It's a, it's a slow, ugly, messy process. And spiritual, emotional, mental healing is no different. So, I, again, I know that I know last week was really challenging for a lot of us. Uh, and it's, it's, it's not fun to look at those kinds of things. But when we are able to encounter those things... And, and vicariously experience them even through some of these media and stuff, it helps us build bridges to people that really are in those places, who really do resonate with those things, so that we can be, you know, a picture of hope and a picture of Jesus in that. And, uh, you know, for me, that's why Jesus' resurrection is, I said it in the discussion, which is that's, it's the essential response to a culture of despair. Because everyone says, you just die, there is nothing else, this is as good as it gets, and the resurrection is is our affirmation that no, it, 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 this isn't the end. And this isn't as good as it gets. You know, there's something better than this. So uh, we're going to keep coming back to that a lot throughout this 
whole class. But uh, really and truly, that's why the resurrection is the core of our faith. That's why Paul, again, why Paul says, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, then we're fools. You know, and, and we, we should be pitied above all other people because, because of that. Yeah, Stan, go ahead. I was just thinking about channels that I got set up on Pandora. Okay. Okay, you know, I'm thinking, okay, there's a blues channel. There ain't nothing good in the blues. <laughs> right. You know, my honey's got all my money. And, all my <laughs> and then I'm thinking, yeah, but look, I got a Southern Gospel channel on there. And so much of the Southern Gospel thing is, yeah, it's got a, a positive outlook because heaven is out there and mm-hmm. it's on the other side. But there's even a lot of that music that life is short. Mm-hmm. It's, it's going to be over. Mm-hmm. You know, hallelujah when I get to the other mm-hmm. side. But it's still pretty tough here. Yeah. So, you, you, you know, depending on how you look at some of that stuff, even, even some of the gospel and the Christian stuff, yeah, it may have a positive outlook, but there might be a tough, tough yeah. to get from here to there. Well, and, 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 and really and truly, you know, I think our Christian music goes wrong when it doesn't acknowledge how messy life can be. You know, because I don't, I don't, I mean, I just know almost no one who would say, oh yeah, my life's perfect and I've never had any problems. I mean, like, I think I know a couple of those people and super jealous, but like, that's just not reality for anyone. And when our art doesn't reflect that, it, it feels dishonest, you know? Um, and again, when we look at the Psalms, we, we read a bunch of Psalms last week that were uh, confessing, or maybe it was two weeks ago, whenever we did it, you know, they, they started out with saying, things are not okay. And, and that's, that's the, you know, that's the ancient Israelite hymn book. That was what they sang when they got together at church. How many of our songs ever say things aren't okay? You know, most of our songs that we sing in church are, you know, God is great. God is awesome thing, you know, which is all, all true stuff. Right. And we have plenty of songs like that too. But I think a lot of times we cheat ourselves because we don't, we don't allow in our worship spaces. We don't allow, um, confession of pain and hurt and things like that. Yeah. Lament. Yes. Yes. In the Psalms, the, yes. Uh, it, it just—it is a way. I mean, God wants us to pour our hearts out yes. to Him. He knows if you're being fake, if you're like, "Oh, it's all good, thank right. you, Father," you know. Right. He, he wants to hear it. Yep. He created you. He knows. Yep. And, and, you know, that's one of the things we've been doing as a church in the last few years is that we've been really intentionally observing the season of Lent. And that's part of that. Like part of the pattern of that is the church says every year for six weeks leading up to Easter, you should think on your sin, right? And confess, mourn, repent. I mean, really take you when you really spend any amount of time thinking about your own sinfulness, you get pretty depressed pretty quick, right? But that's the church says, look, we, we, we skip over it so easily because no one likes to sit in the hard stuff. So let's stop and intentionally say for the next six weeks, we're not going to skip over it. You know, we're going to sit in it and it's not fun and it's not good, but we're going to do it because it's, it's important. It matters. It's part, it's part of our, it's part of what it means to be human and what it means to be a Christian. And so then, then we get to Easter and then we get to, woo, you know? <laughs> but, but we, we don't, we don't skip past that. You know, we really sit with it. Um, okay, good. Good. Good with last week's stuff. We're going to keep moving. We got Oh yeah, go ahead, Sam. People write this music in my particular case. And I have to think it's because somebody has been there or is yep. there. So I don't get around to some of these worlds where these people are at, but to observe that music or observe mm-hmm. that television show or observe that something, I can learn a lot about the world around me. Yes. To the point maybe I can offer something yes. better yeah. to those kind of people. Yep. Those people. 
And for me, you know, that's why I'm so passionate, per me personally, why I'm so passionate about paying attention to popular culture. Because when something is popular, it means that lots and lots of people like it. And so, connect you know, can they, they connect. Yeah, there's something, there's something in it that is resonating deeply within them. And in my experience, most people don't stop to process and think about why this thing, the TV show, this movie, this song, this whatever is resonating so deeply. But as a, as a pastor, as a, as a person, I can look at that song that's at the top of the charts or that TV show that's breaking all the ratings or whatever, and I can observe the messages going on in it and say, oh, interesting, a lot of people must be connecting with this. And I need, like, when I'm aware of what that message is, then it helps me to be able to frame how I interact with people, how I engage them, how I have a conversation with them um, about spiritual things because I'm meeting them where they are. You know, and then introducing them to, to Jesus. I'm talking about how, you know, how is Jesus good news for Breaking Bad fans, for instance, right? Um, how is Jesus good news for people that are watching the Grammys to this conversation over here, right? Um, and, uh, and we believe he is. We, we believe that, that, that the fact that Jesus raised from the dead and reconnected us with the life that God created us to have in the first place is good news for everybody. And so, anyway, yeah, that's that. So I agree with you. And I, I know that's not... I know that's, I understand that's, that's my particular passion, but it's something I'm very passionate about and um, a place where I enjoy finding those conversations. So, okay, ready to talk about the temple? This is going to be fun. We have a lot to do, but it's going to be fun. Uh, so as always, my caveat, I'm going to move as quickly as is comfortable. If I move too fast, slow me down because I, it's more important that you understand than that we get through all the material. Uh, we already blew up the syllabus a couple weeks ago, so... Whatever. Uh, we're off book now. Anything can happen. Uh, so if we need to slow down, we'll just slow down. Um, okay. Now, uh, we talked about creation. We talked about the idea that God, you know, God created the world and it was this divine command and all of this. Uh, and in Genesis 1, you know, God created the heavens and the earth. We think of the, the universe, right? The, but when we think of universe, as we talked about in the first week, we imagine something very different from what the ancient people would have imagined. We think of like, you know, the infinite space and stars and galaxies and all, you know, all that kind of stuff. But the ancients more thought of the, you know, the three, oh, I, I should flip this up, the three-tiered universe. Um, so when an ancient person, don't worry about the chair, we'll get to it in a minute. I know it's colorful and terribly drawn. But when an ancient person heard the creation story, right, Genesis 1, they, what they heard was the story of Yahweh, their God, creating a temple for himself. And in the ancient world, the temple was the house of God. And they meant that actually really, really literally, that God physically lived in the temple. Okay? So, so when we say, that, I mean, we say the church is God's house, but we mean it like pretty metaphorically. We don't think that like God has a bedroom back here in a secret shower that no one else knows about or something like that, right? Um, we, we mean it as a metaphor, like that, that the body of Christ, which is the church, is this is their building. You know, I mean, we have all, but like no one that I've ever met when we say the church is God's house actually think that God physically like has a, you know, a body that hangs out in here. Whereas, maybe not a physical body, but they believe that there was a physical presence of God, and this wasn't just the Israelites either. This was any, any people, they had a temple, that, that there was a physical aspect of their God that lived in their temples. Okay, that was what the temple was for. Um, also, I need to make a little caveat as we're getting started. Uh, remember that we're talking about symbols, 
and symbols are kind of you know intentionally like broader and a little bit more generic. In the in the Bible, there are several different things that kind of all get grouped under this. Uh, the two main ones are the tabernacle and the temple. Okay, the tabernacle was a basically, you could say it's a portable temple. It's the first thing when when the Israelites were freed from Egypt, they go to Mount Sinai. Moses gets the Ten Commandments and the law. Part of what he gets are instructions for building a. Ta- a tabernacle which is a tent but uh it was actually they called it the tent of meeting and it was a way it was basically the house for god but it was uh, they were nomads and lived in tents and moved around and so god's house had to be portable also so that when you read we'll talk about the tabernacle a little bit later but it was it was actually something they could they could move someplace where they were going to camp for a few weeks set it up and then it would they would do the sacrifices and everything and then when it was time to move somewhere else they'd tear it down pack it up and move so it was like it was portable once they settled the promised land and David took over you know, Jerusalem and all that kind of stuff and established his kingdom, they built a temple which was permanent and didn't move. Okay, But symbolically, they were the same thing. In fact, the temple, everything in the temple is just double what it was in the tabernacle. So it's like twice as high, twice as long, twice as wide. Like it's, just, it's the same exact symbolic thing. It's just bigger and permanent. Does that make sense? Okay, so when I'm talking about the temple tonight, we're, you could apply everything we're talking about to either one of those things. And, and symbolically, it was always accomplishing the same purpose. Okay? Good. Uh, that's just in case I make mistakes later and say the wrong words. You'll know that I was doing that on purpose. Um, so, uh, here we go. Uh, there's a couple psalms that I put on your paper that I want to read for you, and I'm going to show you that what they meant, when they thought of the temple, they thought of God's house. So uh, the first one's actually in Isaiah. It's not a psalm, but uh, God said, it says, This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple that's as good as that? Could you build me such a resting place? My hands have made both heaven and earth. They and everything in them are mine. I, the Lord, have spoken. So there you get the sense, right, that you had, you know, in that three-tiered universe, you had the heaven above everything, and that's where God's throne was, and then they talked about the earth as his footstool. So, like, the joke that I make sometimes, it might be sacrilegious, is that, you know, that physical presence of God that's on the earth in the temple is, I guess, like his big toe or something like that. I mean, because the earth is his footstool, right? I mean, his throne is in heaven, and earth is where his feet go. So I guess that, you know, he's kicking back, relaxing on his throne like you do when you're king of everything. And, uh, but that, that's how they talked about it. So again, there's this very physical relationship between heaven and earth. And heaven is God's throne and earth is his footstool. But the whole universe is his temple. Okay, the, whole, the whole of the creation is his temple. Now in Psalms 132, you see... Uh, this is, this is a, a, a song that the pilgrims would sing as they were going to Jerusalem, as they were going up to the temple. They said, let us go to the sanctuary of the Lord. Let us worship at the footstool of his throne. You see that language again. Arise, O Lord, and enter into your resting place, along with the ark, the symbol of your power. That's the ark of the covenant. Um, for the Lord has chosen Jerusalem. He has desired it for his home. This is my resting place forever, he said. I will live here, for this is the home I desire. So again, you have that same kind of language that, you know, the world is God, or the the universe is God's temple, and earth is his footstool, heaven is his throne, all that kind of stuff. And and, and again, for for the ancient people, when they heard a creation story, that's what they heard happening. And you get this, 
you get this if you read through Genesis 1 through 6. You, you get a sense of progress. You get a sense that things are building. There's a lot of really interesting structure going on. I didn't want to read all of Genesis 1 with you, but you can if you want to read it on your own, you can. Um, but I just want to walk through the days with you and show you how it's, it's increasingly getting more and more obvious that something really cool is happening. So, it's, you know, it starts over here with just the chaos and the seas and the water. And this, I didn't know how to draw the Spirit of God. So, you know, the Spirit of God is hovering over this. So that, that's how it all begins, right? And then the first thing that happens, day one, is let there be day and night, right? Light and dark. He creates two, he creates a separation, and he creates light and dark, Okay? Then the next day, he says, okay, we're going to make a separation in the waters. We're going to separate the waters above from the waters below. So you, and that's going to be called the firmament. So he like puts this dome in there and says, this is the sky. And there's, again, and then you have the light and the dark, and you have the, the sky space. And then he says, we're going to gather the waters together, and so dry land can appear. And then he puts all, like, he fills the dry land with vegetation and everything. So you've got... The waters, you've got the day and the night. I, it's getting harder to represent things, right? And you've got the space with the sky, and then you've got the land. So the first three days. first three days, God is creating spaces. The next three days, he's going to fill the spaces. So on day one, we got day and night. On day four, he creates the sun and the moon and the stars. Okay, so he fills the, he fills the spaces they created in the first day. Right? So down here you get, again, everything's getting more complicated. Sun and moon and stars, you've got the light and the dark, everything divided up. Now the next day, because this was where he made basically like the sea and the sky, we would expect he's going to fill the sea and the sky, and that's exactly what he does. He makes birds and fish. Along with everything that's already all there, right? But he's filling, he's again filling another space that he created in the first day. On the sixth day, we created land. So we would expect that he fills the land, and that's exactly what he does. We get animals. Do not try to guess what they are. I'm not sure. Um, but they're animals, okay? And, and so, again, he's filling the spaces. So, again, on the first three days, forming, forming spaces. On the, the next three days, filling the spaces. And you can tell as you read through this that there's some, I mean, it's, it's obviously going, we're cheating because we know that it's a world, right? We already know the story. But even if you didn't, as you're reading through this, like, it's so clear that this is progressing, that God has an end in mind, that God has a goal. And if you were an ancient person, and the way you looked at the world was that the whole universe is God's temple, you would sort of understand that God is building himself a house here, a cosmic temple for himself. And there's a really cool thing about ancient temples— uh, and just how they all work. And as some of you who are in my theology class last, whatever, semester or whatever we call them here, uh, you've already heard this part of it, right? But once a temple was built, once it was finished, the last thing you did, and you made a big ceremony out of this, and this is the way you knew the temple was complete, was you took an, an idol of your god, or an image of your god, and you put it, you had this big installation where you put it in the temple. And once the, once the, the physical representation of the god was in the temple, that's how you knew the temple was complete and ready, ready to start being worshipped at. And someone in here, I'm sure, knows how the sixth day of creation ends. If not, I put it on your paper. God says, let's make humans in our image. And so the last thing that happens in the creation of the cosmic temple is that God makes an image of himself, male and female, and puts them in the temple. And once that has happened... God looks at everything that he has done, and he says, this is very good. We're done. 
Now the temple is open for business. Now we can begin the very serious business of enjoying this world together, me and my people. And so the, the, if you were an ancient person reading Genesis 1, for you, this would have been a story about God building a house for himself and installing us in the house as his children and his divine guests. We're his image. We're the picture of God in the world. And, and uh, the, the reason everything culminates on the seventh day, on the Sabbath day, uh, that's the day when worship occurs, right? And so the whole, the whole idea behind a Sabbath is that the Sabbath is the time when everything is the way it's supposed to be. Everything is ordered, everything is put in its place, and everything's running the way it's supposed to. All systems go, right? That's, that's kind of the idea. Uh, I think a lot of times we get this idea that Sabbath is like nap day, right? You have to rest on the Sabbath day. And so, yeah, and so, I mean, whatever. But that, that's not exactly, that's not the biblical understanding of what rest is. Rest is when everything is working the way it should, and so you can do the things you need to do. So an example I use, I'm a very messy person, and my desk gets cluttered over time. It just like slowly creeps and creeps, and my workspace gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And eventually, it's so chaotic, it's so messy, that I can't get any work done. So I come into my office, it happens about once a, once a month or so here, right? I come into my office, and I look at my desk, and I go, oh, okay. I have all this work that I need to do, but I can't do any of the work because of the mess, and so I have to order the chaos. I have to bring the condition of my desk into an ordered functional thing where everything's in its proper place once again. And once I've done the tedious, boring, no fun work of cleaning my desk, I can get down to the actual work that I need to do, which is my job, which is what I like. Does that make sense? So I mean, there's two works, but one of them's like the work of getting things the way they need to be. And the other one's like the things that you actually want to do that, that energize you, that charge you up. And so that's what we're seeing here. Like it starts out and everything is chaotic. You know, it's, it's formless and empty, right? And then as, as, as we move through the days, the formless gets formed and the empty gets filled. And so we get to the seventh day, and now everything is the way, everything's, everything's the way it should be. The house is done, we can all move in and live in the house with God. So, you know, like, have that, that food, you've all moved before, right? Like, you're in the house, but you're not in the house yet. You know, you're in the house, but you're dodging around boxes, you can't cook anything because your pans are all still packed away and all of that. And there's a difference once you're actually unpacked and everything's ordered and put away, and now you're, now you're living in the house. And that's, that's what we're seeing in Genesis 1. That's, that's how the ancient people understood the purpose of the world. Is that it's the house of God, it's the temple on a macro scale, and we live in the house as God's children, as God's honored guests, as God's images. Does that make sense? Okay. Okay. Any questions about that? That was a lot of stuff really fast. The house metaphor work? Okay. Now, the other problem is that when we say house, we mean different things than they did in the ancient world too still, right? For us, a house is like one down the street, right? Where it typically, primarily, when we say house, we mean nuclear family, right? A mom and dad and 2.5 kids and a dog or a cat or something like that. Um, in the ancient world, though, uh, this is what some, uh, a lot of scholars call the 3G family. It's not, it has nothing to do with cell phones. Uh, it's, it's three generation family. Okay, so it's, it's grandparents, parents, kids. Still do, now I know there are families in our culture that have grandparents who live with them, but it's still different, and this is how. 
In those families, typically the son is the main male of the house. It's usually his home that he owns and he's working and the parents are retired and living with him, right? And that, like, so it's, it, it's you, have, you have the younger generation, the kids who depend on the father. You have the older generation, the parents who kind of also depend on the son. And, it, you know, the, the, the middle generation is sort of the primary uh, contributor to the household, right? They're earning the income and those kinds of things. Yeah, right? Um, in this model, in the 3G model of the ancient world, it's the oldest living male who's the patriarch. And, and, and then all of his sons and their wives and their children live in the same house, which obviously is probably going to be pretty big, right? So it's, 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 it's still even a little bit different from the three-generation families that we have today in that the oldest male is the one who's in charge of everything. They're the patriarch. Um, now, when you're thinking about this, and when you think about ancient Israel, I was doing some math the last time I had to teach through some of this stuff. At the time of Abraham, there were probably only about 150,000 people living in what we think of today as like Palestine, like the whole country, which is less than living Dayton. So in the whole nation of Israel, Palestine, that whole geographic region, like not a ton of people. It was tribal, and they were all grouped in these 3G families. And most of the time when they talk about a village, you're talking about like one family, maybe two or three. I mean, they were not, these were very small groups of people. You know, under, under 200 people are in a village and stuff like that. Um, and the way the, the way the whole society was structured, uh, and this was true really in, in a lot of ways, even still up into Jesus' time, is it started at the home and then worked outwards. Okay, so the, the, the home was called the Beit Av, which means house of the father. Okay, and that, again, that was your 3G family. And that was where, uh, again, the, the oldest male, the patriarch, is the one who's in charge. And then <laughs> what he says goes. Okay, usually then, the, the, the Beit Av, these, these houses, were part of a tribe, right? The 12 tribes of Israel. And the elders of the tribe were all of the patriarchs, right? And they, they formed the tribal elders, and they made all the decisions for the tribe. Uh, now, if you had a big enough village or like a tribe or something like that, you would have, and you'll see this in the, in the scriptures quite often, you'll have what was called the city gate. Uh, this is much less impressive than what it sounds like. It was basically just like the place where all of the elders, all of the patriarchs would get together, and they would like hang out. And make decisions. So in your homework, I'm giving you Ruth uh, chapter 4. Um, because in Ruth chapter 4, there's a, dis- there's, it's not a dispute makes it sound like there was a fight. There wasn't a fight, right? But there was a legal matter that needed to be settled. And Boaz brought it to the city gate. And that's because there was no court system, right? There was no, you didn't go hire a lawyer and then have them file a petition or anything like that. If you had a matter that you wanted worked out, and in this case, it was a, a, genealog- a genealogical matter. It was a matter of some inheritances and stuff with Ruth's um, uh, deceased husband and some of, the, some of the patrimony and all of that kind of issues, right? The way you did that was you took it to the city gate and all of the elders decided what the right decision was. And that, that was, then that was law because basically everyone in the town heard what the ruling was and that was that. So that's how, that's how so in, in the house, it was the, the father, right? It was the patriarch who made the rules. In the tribe, it was the elders or the city gate, which is just, that's the fancy word for where the elders hung out. Then at the, at the next level up, it was the kingdom, 
right? You had a king who ruled over everything. And that was, again, all, it was all done. You know, king was typically succeeded by his eldest son. And so there was still this, it was still very much this like patriarchal lineage kind of a thing. It was, it was, you know, over all the tribes. And then of course, over the king, there was the world. And for, for the Jewish people, they understood each of these things to basically be a, a larger version of the one before it. So the tribe is just a it's just the house model kind of blown up a little bit. And the kingdom is just the tribal model blown up a little bit. And then the way the world worked was just the kingdom model blown up a little bit more than that. But everything was all kind of went back to, you know, who is your father? Who's the one who has the authority over you? And of course, again, this is why it matters that God is the creator and God is everyone. This is why they call him their heavenly father, right? Because God is, God is the, the ultimate father of the house. Um, God is the ultimate patriarch or the ultimate uh, ruler of, of our lives. That's why it's so important in the scriptures each time they go through the lineage and the genealogy mm-hmm. of Jesus. And, mm-hmm. Right? Yes, very much so. Yeah, genealogy mattered. It was everything for them. Um, it was always the, yeah. um, the tribe was the family, right? Probably mostly family. It, was, it, was, it would be like... Yeah, look, actually, okay, I'm going to come back to that in a second. I want to read that verse that I gave you there in Genesis 13. No, because I just think this will help answer that question. So the problem is, okay, yeah, how do you, how do you, know, when it, how do you know when it's time to split up the bait off, right? What, or what happens when your, what happens your father dies and it's you and four brothers, right? Is it just the elder brother and then everyone still lives in the house? Or, you know, at some point, obviously, people divided up and moved around because we, we don't all just, like, live in one big house now. Right. And so how do you know when it's time to split up? How do you get to the point where there's different bait offs? There's different houses in a tribe. And here's a great example of that happening in Genesis 13. So this is Abram, who's a soon to be renamed Abraham. And he has no children of his own, but he has a nephew whose name is Lot, who is traveling with him. And this is what happens in Genesis 13. Lot, who was traveling with Abram, had also become very wealthy with flocks of sheep and goats, herds and cattle, and many tents. But the land could not support both Abram and Lot with all their flocks and herds living so close together. So disputes broke out between the herdsmen of Abram and Lot. Finally, Abram said to Lot, let's not allow this conflict to come between us or our herdsmen. After all, we're close relatives. The whole countryside is open to you. Take your choice of any section of land you want and we will separate. So... (laughs) It actually, what it came down to is when it was time to separate your house was a very practical concern. It was whenever you needed to because there weren't enough resources to sustain your household. Okay, so Abraham is, Abraham is traveling with his nephew and everything's fine until it's not fine anymore. And at the point it's not fine anymore when resources are too scarce, when, the, when they both basically get too many herds to support one, you know, traveling all together, they decided to split. And they split and... If you know what happened a lot next, it wasn't great, but Abraham was fine. <laughs> so uh, does that make sense about, so Angel, when you, so when you're talking about like, well, who is this tribe, right? Well, in that case, right, Abraham and Lot would still be in the same tribe, that they're, they were a part of the same house, they had to split, but they're still going to be a part of the same tribe. So if... They would still be under the kingdom. That's why it's yep. that the kingdom then was starting out of not just all family, it was... Yeah, correct, correct. But it's, I mean... So big. Yep. Exactly, exactly right. Um, and that's, that's exactly what you see. And, and so, in fact, later, uh, Lot will get kidnapped, 
by some people. And even though he's not in Abraham's house anymore, because they split, uh, Abraham feels an obligation to him because they're still in the same tribe. And so he goes and rescues Lot. Right? So you still have this. And, and this was actually also how loyalty worked, too. Right? Um, if, and it's sort, of the, it's sort of that, like, you know, no one else can beat up my kid brother but me kind of thing. It's like, you know, if, if we're in the same kingdom and someone else attacks our kingdom, we're going to, you know, we're going to come to help you. Um, if we're in the same tribe and like some like other tribes are fighting with each other, but it's all kind of in the same kingdom, we'll be like, eh, maybe we'll help, maybe we won't. What's in it for me? Um, if in the house, like you know, if some if some other if your cousins are all fighting with each other and that's in a different house and you're not, you might you know. But your your primary loyalty is always to your people first. So if it came if if, if your house is fighting with another house in your tribe, you're going to side with your house. Right? If your tribe's fighting with another tribe in your kingdom, you're going to side with your tribe. If your kingdom's fighting with another, I mean, and so on and so on and so on. But your, your loyalty kind of starts from the ground up, if that makes sense. Right? How you decide who you're, who you're loyal. And, I mean, we haven't changed that much, right? We, I was just going to say yeah. that's the same thing. Yeah. So, um, so this, and this is all, this is all how the ancient people understood God's work. And again, God's the father of the house. Uh, of the cosmic house and we're all his children and so we're all we all in the jewish view and in our view today we say we all have an obligation a responsibility to obey our father right and and um so the reason we're talking about all of this is because all of these you know the the house tribe kingdom world all of these end up sort of getting represented in the symbol excuse me of the temple because the ideal in all of this is a well-ordered world. Kind of going back to that, you know, that the Sabbath idea over there. The ideal is everything's going the way it should. You know, everything's functioning normally. Uh, that's what that's what the ideal for the house, for the tribe, for the kingdom, for the world was. Of course, we know that's not how houses, kingdoms, tribes, and worlds go. We know that that the the, the reality of the situation is that things do not function the way that God wants them to. We call that sin. But that's the ideal, and for the Israelites, everything that they thought about was in, ter- in those terms. It's, is, how can the house be in order? How can God's house be in order? Okay? So that's where the, that's where the temple really comes in. Are we okay so far? That's, I know, that's all. All of these feel like really weird, abstract things that we're talking about. They're going to come together, I promise. Oh, I hope. We'll see. They should. <laughs> okay. Now, there's a couple of really cool things about uh, the temple. The temple, uh, I kind of mentioned this already, but the, the, they saw the temple as a micro version of the world, of the universe. Okay, So um, in the construction of the tabernacle, which if you want to read some really super fascinating ancient Near Eastern archaeological details, these can be found in Exodus 25 through 31. Uh, that's seven chapters of goodness. Um, the construction of the tabernacle is actually broken into seven steps. It has seven um, phrases to, to parallel the seven days of creation. And it always says, and this is what God told Moses to do, and this is what God told Moses to do, and this is what God, and it, that happens seven times. Uh, and the final set of commands has to do with how to observe the Sabbath day. That's not, a, that's not a coincidence, it's not a mistake, it's not an accident, that's on purpose. Because they saw that the temple, the tabernacle, were a, were a micro version of the universe. 
Okay. There's also some other really neat things that are going on. Uh, I, I gave you a little itty bitty, probably too small to read map of the temple, but you can, if, if it is too small, you can Google image search for, uh, you know, floor plan of Solomon's temple or something like that. And there's a billion of these all over the place. But uh, outside the temple, there was this huge water basin that they called the sea. Uh, and and uh, it actually represented the 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 seas, the, those chaotic, you know, dangerous waters, because they were part of the creation, and so they're set outside the temple, outside you know, outside the the well ordered part of the world. But it was out there, and that was where they did like the ritual washing and things like that. Uh, inside of the temple itself, it was decorated with all kinds of gold and bronze and all this stuff. And uh, the, the big, huge, what we call a menorah, right? The big, huge uh, stand, candle stand, uh, was actually created to represent the tree of life. Uh, so it had light on it, you know, light, life, all that kind of stuff. Um, again, a very intentional image. And then there's three tiers to the temple, sort of like they looked at the world, where there's um, the outside, there's the middle courts, where the priests were, who were, again, sort of the representatives of God, just like humans are the, the image of God. And then in the very middle, there was the holy place where God lived, which is sort of like the, you know, the heaven where heaven where God's throne was. And so you had this three-tiered temple, you know, three-tiered universe, all these, all these different symbols. And the point of all of that is that for an ancient Israelite, the temple was the one place in this disordered, sinful world that's not running the way God designed it to, that God wants it to, where the world is the way God designed it and the way God wants it to. By having a sort of micro-representation of the world that's carefully ordered, that's carefully maintained by the priest, then it's, it's, a, it's a sort of starting place where God's rescue is going to spread out from. It's sort of like, a, it's sort of like a, an outpost where the, the healing of the world is going to be moving out. Does that make sense? So, so all of this, all of this idea of making the temple represent creation was all very, very intentional. They, they understood that when they were worshiping, they were actually working to heal the world. And again, go back to the flood story we talked about a couple of weeks ago. We talked about that, that they would have understood this in terms of uncreation, that human sinfulness had gotten to the point where the, the, the fabric of, of reality was basically undone, where everything went back to being formless and empty instead of formed and filled. Okay, where, where basically, and, and, and a, a simple way to say this is a way that we already think about it. Human sin is working against God's will, right? God's will is for order and form and function. And human sinfulness works against that. Human sinfulness brings disorder. It brings formlessness. It brings functionlessness, right? And so they understood this fairly literally that when we, when we sin, we're courting death and destruction, and that that was played out in the flood story. And that for them to worship, to participate in the temple, to work, to work towards maintaining this carefully ordered, carefully structured worldview was a way for them to participate with God in healing the world. Does that make sense? Okay. So here's where it's going to get a little bit fun. Um, how many people have ever spent any amount of time talking about like clean and unclean animals? eating kosher and all this kind of stuff. Has anyone ever been super confused by that? I have. Um, yeah, we're like, why? Bacon is delicious. 
why would anyone say that you should not eat that, right? Um, well, uh, we're, what, talking about clean and unclean animals can actually be a really interesting window into how the Israelites understood their worship. So, um, let's see if make sure I got all the yeah okay so. There's a scholar named Mary Douglas, and I put uh, the the very back page of your stuff. I put the article if you want to read like a pretty scholarly article on Leviticus, which I know is everyone's idea of a Good Friday night. Um, I put the link in there so you can look it up. But this is a really really famous article that she wrote uh, quite a few years ago, uh, and she actually works through Leviticus and really does an amazing job of understanding the the why the rhyme and the reason behind clean and unclean. Right? Why are certain animals clean and unclean? And then actually how that can inform us to the larger attitude towards cleanliness and uncleanliness in the scriptures. Uh, different bodily functions that are clean and unclean and all these kinds of things. Um, so uh, for her, she says that the categories of clean and unclean, uh, actually uh, for animals, they're the same as they are for priests. And they actually have a lot of parallels to the moral laws or what we'd call like the justice laws. So, there were two particular concerns for what, an animal, what made an animal unclean. And she calls them blood and blemish. Okay? So, uh, the first, we need to go back to Genesis chapter 9. This is after the flood waters have receded. And Noah and his sons and all of the animals have left the ark. And this is God renewing his covenant with them. And here's what it says. God blessed Noah and his sons and told them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. All the animals of the earth and the birds of the sky and all of the small animals that scurry along the ground and all the fish in the sea will look on you with fear and terror. I have placed them in your power. I have given them to you for food, just as I have given you grain and vegetables. But you must never eat any meat that still has the lifeblood in it. Now, this is a big change from pre-flood. In the pre-flood world, everything was vegetarian. Nothing ate meat. Okay, And after the flood... God specifically tells us, you can eat meat now. And he makes this weird little, well, it's weird to us. It wasn't weird to the ancient people. Weird, weird little caveat that you're not allowed to eat meat that has blood in it. Okay. Now, how many people like me enjoy steaks rare, medium rare, medium? Okay. Any well done people, well done only? You are biblically faithful. Good for you. Okay. <laughs> the rest of us pagans uh, who enjoy delicious uh, rare steaks or medium rare, whatever. That's what that's talking about, right? For the ancient people, they understood that blood is life, okay? And that if you ate, and, and so God specifically said, don't eat meat that has blood in it. Don't eat, basically he was always saying, never eat blood, okay? Because blood is life, and there's this sort of, uh, oh, I mean, there's like a, a sense of like murder in that, okay? Um, and there's a, there's a specific group of, of animals that are considered unclean and that's, uh, that are carnivores. And uh, Douglas is arguing that the reason for that is because carnivores eat meat with blood in it, right? I mean, that's what they, they don't stop and make sure they cook their meat well done before they devour it. They eat it and they eat the blood and all. And so when you're eating carnivores, you're, you know, vicariously eating blood and you're participating in that in that blooding. And so um, she specifically ties the carnivore commandment back to the commandment from Noah uh, to not eat meat with blood in it. Okay, and that's why that's why that particular group of animals is unclean. Okay, kind of cool, right? Well, just, I'm thinking ahead, I guess, and just 
light bulbs going on. Okay. <laughs> Good. And they slaughter the yes. animals and how they bless yes. them. Yes. 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 Yep. It helps, right? It does. It makes a yes, good. Okay. Now the other group of animals that are unclean, and this is super it's super weird for us, okay? But it it worked in their whole symbolic universe was animals that have what she is what she calls the word she uses the word blemish, which is something she takes from from old King James translations, okay? So here's uh, Leviticus 22. If you present a peace offering to the Lord from the herd of the flock, whether it is to fulfill a vow or as a voluntary offering, you must offer a perfect animal. It, must, it may have no defect of any kind, and there's the word blemish in the King James, right? You must not offer an animal that is blind, crippled, or injured, that has a wart or a skin sore or scabs. Such animals must never be offered on the altar as special gifts to the Lord. If a bull or a lamb has a leg that is too long or too short, it may be offered as a voluntary offering, but it may be offered to fulfill a vow. If an animal has damaged testicles or is castrated, you may not offer it to the Lord. Such an animal will not be accepted on your behalf, for they are mutilated or defective. Okay, so this is this talk of blemishes, right? And things that are animals that are either missing something, right? They're blind or crippled or lamed or, or damaged in some way. Or this other weird thing that's saying that there's two, like, it has a leg that's too long. or I mean, it's like more, it has more, right? It either has not enough or it has too much. It's like a Goldilocks pair. You know, it's just, it has to be just right. And what's interesting is that uh, uh, later in Leviticus, the same language is used of injuring another person. It says anyone who injures another person, or again, uh, the, the translation is anyone who gives another person a blemish, okay, must be dealt with according to the injury inflicted. A fracture for a fracture, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Whatever anyone does to injure another person must be paid back in kind. Okay. Now this is really, this is really interesting that again, this idea of blemishes carries across. It's not just talking about animals and animals being presented to God, but it's also now talking about social relationships and how we act with each other. And that if, if something's done to someone, then that same thing has to be done, you know, back to, to the person that did it and all of this. Um, for an ancient person, there was not a sharp distinction between my individual body and my family's body. You know, all of us, our bodies is, you know, the house, we could say. Um, and again, really not that sharp of a distinction between my house and my tribe's houses. I mean, you know, again, we understood that they were different, but my house is my tribe, like they're all there. And then again, my tribe and my kingdom, I mean, all of these things kind of stacked on each other. And all of these kind of got wrapped up in the temple. And always, 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 always what was important was that order be maintained, that things be where they were meant to be. So... We're not going to get into this because it's gross, but you can read it in your spare time if you want. When you go through all the stuff in Leviticus about bodily functions, like it's always about bodies that are basically leaking or not the way they should be. So, I mean, one we can talk about safely is like if you're injured, right? If you're, I mean, if you're, if your skin is broken, you're, I mean, you're leaking, you're leaking blood, right? I mean, you're, it's, it's not supposed to be that way. You look at that and you're like, oh, that's bad. Like, that's wrong. That, you know, skin's not supposed to do that. Uh, and so... Uh, and, and you can extrapolate to the other ones on your own. Um, but but that's, that idea is that what was, what was prized for the Israelites was a wholeness of body, of home, of nation, of world. Okay, wholeness. Not, uh, I mean, the Goldilocks symbol, not too much, not too little, but a wholeness. Okay, now here's, here's what Douglas does 
where she kind of ties it all together. I, I put a big long quote in here, and I, I wanted to actually quote like three pages because it was just all really good. But um, for for an ancient person, and again, go back go back to this creation thing, right? Everything had limits to it. Everything was divided. Here's where day starts. Here's where night starts. Here's where the sky is. Here's where the ground is. Right? Everything everything was ordered and had its limits and had it, everything was very carefully put together. Uh, and and that, was the, that was true of the world. That was true of the home, right? There, uh, if any of you have ever been in cultures that still have really, really sharp distinctions between, like, the public and the private, you know, there's specifically, really for women, too, there are specific ways women dressed in the home and ways they dressed in public. There are specific ways men acted with women in home and women in the public. I mean, everything was very regimented and clearly distinguished, and, and, and there, was a lot, there was a heavy amount of order there. Okay, and that goes all the way into the animals and the sacrificial rituals and all this kind of stuff. So here's what Douglas says. Causing a blemish in a neighbor is doing him a damage according to the elementary principle of justice. Taking away something that is his by right, leaving him with too little. Or, by oppression, giving him a heavy load to bear. bear. Causing a blemish is giving a laborer excessive burdens. The interesting thing is that the neighbor who has suffered the outrage in this case of the blasphemer is the Lord himself. The Lord is included with the rest of his creation. Now we're going back into talking about the animals. The forbidden species either have something lacking or something superfluous, something extra. And their disfigurement has something to do with injustice. Okay, now I want to pause there for a second. Um, When you get into looking at all the different clean and unclean animals where we talk about blemishes... Uh, there's this really weird, I mean, it gets really strange. So like fish are clean unless they don't have scales. So like catfish are unclean. Sharks are unclean, right? Because it's lacking like a fish, like fish have scales. And so because certain fish are lacking, they have a blemish. And so they're unclean. Um, yeah, it's real. I mean, it's, it's, again, we don't think that way. Right, we have our nice, we have our nice uh, biological kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. Right, that's all divided out in our five kingdoms and all that. that. That's how we think about animals, right? But for them, they were in these categories. They were in these like divisions. So uh, cows are clean because they chew cud and they have a split hoof. Okay, and those are the two things that required for a clean animal. Pigs have a split hoof, but they don't chew cud. And so they're considered blemished or lacking in some way. Um, rabbits, I think, don't do either, and so they're considered clean, if I remember right. There's again, you have to like you get you start getting charts out, and you can imagine the poor priest that had to teach all of these rules, right? That you have all the different stuff. And, and with insects, it goes the same way. Like if they don't have segmented legs, then they're considered unclean because it, insects have segmented legs. It's so, like locusts are okay, which is why John the Baptist in the wilderness say locusts and honey. Right? I mean this, so, and and when you start looking at there, there is no other rhyme or reason to why all of these different animals are there until you start looking at it through the perspective of blemish. And it's basically like there's this sort of, there's this sort of ideal, and any animal that doesn't look like that gets considered unclean. But God created it all. Yep. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so here's a caveat. Here's an important caveat. When we're talking about clean and unclean, we're not exactly talking about holy and unholy or good and bad. Okay? They, they overlap. But, for instance... Um, there's a certain time of the month that women were considered unclean. That is not to say that they're evil or unholy in that time. Okay? It's just, it was just, just unclean. 
And again, that we don't, we'll, we'll keep it PG, right? But there are reasons for that. And so, so too with these animals. They weren't saying like pigs are uh, evil or, yeah, from the devil or something like that because they're unclean. They're just unclean. And so your, your question is, okay, but God created these animals this way. Why bother with such a seemingly bizarre system of classification? And, and here's, um, here's where it all kind of ties into the symbolic universe. I want to read you the end of Douglas's quote, and, and, we'll, and then I want to unpack it with you. So she says, Holiness is incompatible with predatory behavior. The command to be holy is fulfilled by respecting blood, which is the symbol of violent predation, and respecting the symbolic victims of predation. Okay? The forbidden animals in this perspective represent the endangered categories for whom Isaiah spoke, the oppressed, the fatherless, the widowed. Respect for them is a way of remembering the difference between the clean and the unclean, the holy and the unholy. Okay, so what, what she's saying is that this entire dietary system was created to symbolically represent uh, people who get left out. People who have had things taken from them or have had too much put on them. People who have been added to or taken away from in unjustly. Right? And so you have these you have these clean and these unclean animals, and when you are when you're e- e- so the idea is even around the table, even when you're eating your meal, your meal is a symbolic representation of a well ordered universe where everything is equitable and just, okay, where everything's in its proper place, where everything is ordered. Even even your I mean even the food you're eating when you when you go to cook a meal, the act of selecting the things that you have, like undergirds and supports this idea that that God values a world the way it, it should be, a world that's ordered, a world that's holy. Yeah, Angel. Do they go to the extreme? I mean, or did God want them to be that extreme? I guess I'm having problems. Well, yeah, okay, so this is a great, this is a great point. <laughs> Angel's question, why? So why would, why? It seems tedious. What's the, what's the point? Well, the point, the point is that everything you do would remind you that God, that, let me put it this way, that everything you do would remind you that God calls you to be a partner in putting the world back the way it should be. So when you are, when you are not eating a pig because it doesn't chew cud, because it's blemished in some way, there's an understanding that, okay, is there anything actually morally repugnant about eating a pig? No, of course there's not. You know, maybe you don't like bacon and ham and maybe you do whatever, but there's nothing morally sinful about it. But there is something sinful about depriving other people in your community of the basic necessities, of, of making them go without. And so even your diet is hopefully reinforcing the picture of the world that God is calling you to, which is that everyone has what they need. And, and the clean and the unclean animals, the clean and the unclean bodily stuff, all of it is part of the same sort of world where everything's in its proper place. Everything's ordered. Everything's square. And so you're, they're honoring God. Yes. Really, yeah. And, and the exact, what you pointed out, which was that didn't people take it too far, is exactly Jesus's point. When he comes, and it's, it's all the prophets too, right? So you have Isaiah coming and he says, uh, he's, you know, he says, God is basically saying, do you think that I just like dead animals? Like, do you think that's why I'm having you kill all of these things? No. Like, the point of the sacrifice is to remind you that you're to act justly. 
Like, so if you're, and so then he says, if you're not going to start treating the poor well, if you're not going to start taking care of the widows and the orphans, quit killing stuff because you're just wasting meat. Like that, I mean, that's what he says, right? And Jesus comes along and says the same thing. He's like, the point of the dietary code, the point of keeping the Sabbath, the point of all of these rules that you have isn't so that, isn't because God just likes rules, right? It's to, it's to form you into just loving neighborly people. It's to form you into the image of God in the world. That's the point. And you, like we, right, we get caught up in the rule. Oh, God just must really like rules. And so we just run the rules into the ground. Right? Instead of, instead of understanding that, that all of this is meant to point us to God, we just, we just make it an end in and of itself. And we end up worshiping the rules instead of worshiping the God. So, okay. yeah. And I could see how they would do it. And I think I would have gotten caught up in the yeah. rules because there were so many. Mm-hmm. It was a complicated system. Yeah, you know, it it was. It was complicated. But it's also complicated because we're looking at it from the outside. I mean, imagine that you had grown up with all of these rules from the time you were four or one. You know, I mean, it would just seem really normal to you. And if someone came in and like, what do you mean you don't eat bacon? You'd be like, I don't know. We just don't. know. What's weird about that? You know? So... It's hard for us. I mean, and again, if any of you have ever traveled to a very different culture, not like, I mean, I guess European countries are kind of different, but if you've gone anywhere that's really, really, really unlike the culture that you grew up in and, and you have no idea what's going on, right? You're just like, whoa. And you can make silly mistakes and offend people without meaning to and thing, you know, things like that because you just don't know because it's so, so, so different. And 95% of the rules are unspoken and everyone just knows that's the way it is. Except you, because you didn't know those way it is, because you came to it from the outside. So that's, that's us. When we go back into the biblical culture, particularly the Old Testament, and we're reading all these rules and all this stuff, it seems incredibly tedious and burdensome to us. But that's mainly just because we didn't live in it. You know, for them it was... I could see where people get, you work your way to Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah, Mike, go ahead. God changed the rules after Christ. Yes, he did. <laughs> Mm -hmm. He lowered the sheet and said, you can eat bacon now, Peter. And there was much rejoicing. Yeah, I know, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, and that's a a great, I mean, that's a great observation. Uh, And we would look at, you know, we could look at why, and there's there's all kinds of, there's all kinds of questions about why did God do that and all of that. But in, in the context of the book of Acts, it seems very much that the dietary code had become a barrier to Gentiles coming into the, to the faith. So again, what was once meant to be an invitation to learn the, the pattern of living like God, right? To learn what it meant to live in a well-ordered world, to learn what it meant to follow the way of God. It had become a barrier that was keeping people out. And so God dispensed with it. Praise Jesus, because I love bacon, right? So... <laughs> Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's, and, and that's, that's, that's what we always have to remember when we look at, when we look at the laws of the Old Testament, right? Is that the, again, God doesn't just like love rules for the sake of rules. God loves life and God loves us. And the rules are meant, Paul tells us that, right? In Galatians, he says the law is a, he calls it a tutor that leads us to Christ. These, the, 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 the rules that God gives us are meant to form us and point us towards Jesus, Right? They tutor us, they guide us, they shape us. And so the laws that God give us are meant to form us. They're meant to keep us safe. They're meant to keep us well. They're meant to keep us whole and healthy. Um, and they're meant, they're meant to point us in the direction of Jesus. Um, so that's hard, that's hard to imagine, reading Leviticus. Um, it take, I mean, th- th- that, 
this is one of those books that just takes a tremendous amount of work to understand. Right? It, we, we are so, so, so far removed from, from that culture and that world uh, that, that it can really just seem very strange and off-putting uh, to a lot of people. And, and it, I mean, it is. It's just very different. But the, the same God that gave those laws uh, to the Israelites is the same God that is in the person of Jesus and the same God who is at work in us through the Holy Spirit today. It's, it's all the same. And so the same character, the same nature, the same person is behind all of those laws. And when we, if we do make a, an earnest, full study of them, they, will, they point us to God. They point us to that God. So, yeah, Mike, go ahead. I've heard people uh, or preachers say that the reason God had all those rules Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, so again, the original the original plan in Genesis one was that all humans would be an. Im- I mean, take the word image very literally. We're a picture of God in creation. We're an image. People should be able to look at us and go, "Oh, that's what God looks like." Okay, I get it. And that's what an image is, right? And so that, of course, ended up not happening very quickly after this, you know, two chapters later. Um, But when you get to Exodus, when you get to Sinai, so again, what happens? The Israelites are freed from slavery in Egypt. They're brought to the foot of Mount Sinai, and God makes a covenant with them. He says, if you will be my people... Right? If, if, if you'll follow me and if you'll commit your life to me, if you'll be my people, then I will be your God. Right? I'll, and I'll, I'll have all the uh, responsibilities and authority that a God would have for you. I'll be your God. And then he says, I will make you a kingdom of priests. Um, now, we'll, we'll, get, we'll talk more about like the priests and the sacrifice stuff all in a couple weeks. But the, the priest's job was to be that, me- that intermediary between the people and God. The reason they occupied that second space in the temple was that they were the representative of God. They were the picture of God. They were the image of God to the people. And Yahweh says, if you'll be my people, I'll be your God, and I will make you a kingdom of priests. I'll make you a whole, a whole nation that is a picture of me to the world. Right? So again, we get that same idea that, yeah, when people look at Israel... They're meant to see God. And so, yeah, all of these rules, all of these regulations and stuff are very much about pointing the whole world to who Yahweh is, away from all of the other false gods, right? The Egyptian gods, the Canaanite gods, the Babylonian gods. We can get real spicy and say the American gods, right? We still have some. So... um, so yeah, that, that was very much the point of these things. Very much the point of them. Uh, in fact, there's a, there's a, I, I never heard how this ended up turning out. There was, there was some archaeological uh, expedition that was trying to date the conquest of the Promised Land based on the amount of pig bones found in various layers of garbage. Because the assumption would be once the Israelites moved in, there was fewer pigs being eaten and their bones being disposed of. Because pigs are unclean. So... Smart, right? I thought. So, good. Okay. So, so what about all of this? And where are we going to go next week? What, what really mattered in the ancient world was a carefully ordered universe. Okay? And again, think about, think about go back to that first, the, the first couple weeks. They saw the world as, as dangerous and as sort of hostile towards life. 
right? With all of these, all of these forces that were at work against them, disease and the seas and all, you know, all those seasons and all that kind of stuff. And so they pursued a clean, holy life because that was how they saw themselves participating with God to keep the world good. Uh, something I didn't talk about earlier and I meant to was, you know, um, the temple was not only a place used for uh, sin offerings. Sin offerings are one of several types of sacrifices. And that's one thing you did at the temple, was sacrifice and atone for your sins. But the temple, there were sacrifices going on at the temple all the time, every day, all day long. And that was because they were maintaining the universe. They were maintaining the world. They were maintaining the cosmos with God. So we we sort of think of the world, and we don't mean to, but we sort of think of it as like a machine that everything just sort of runs on these natural processes and like, you know, at some point someone flipped a switch and turned it all on and now it just basically sort of runs on its own and we have all these, you know, we have all of our explanations for everything happens. We know why it rains. We know why polar vortexes come down and freeze us. We, we, we understand all, but, but it's all, it's all, um, it's mechanical is not quite the right word, but it's sort of a mechanical process. I mean, it's, it's all cause and effect and it's all, it's all contained. It's all self-contained, right? Um, the ancients didn't see things that way. For them, every single thing that happened was, a, was an intentional act of God. And so for them, the temple running all the time, I mean, th- that's, why it was, that's why they were doing peace offerings and, and all these other kinds of you know, grain offerings and all these kinds of things because it was part of actively maintaining the, the rhythms of the world. And that they were, they were actually partnering with God to, to maintain the universe. Uh, not... Well, and this is actually another interesting difference between Israelites and the rest of the nations around them. Not because God needed their help, right? But because God invited them to help. So again, the, the, the reason if you're a Babylonian, you make your sacrifices to Marduk. Or if you're a Canaanite, the reason you sacrifice to Baal is because if you don't, then they're going to get hungry and decide that you're not worth their time and either leave or smite you. That's not the way it was in Israel. God did not need humans' help maintaining the world. But in the beginning, in the garden, right, God invites humanity into the creative process. God allows us to participate. So the example I always use, when I was like seven years old, I think, I built a bookshelf with my dad. And when I say that, I mean my dad built a bookshelf and I just sort of watched because obviously when I'm seven and we're using power saws and stuff like that, I'm completely no good at all. (laughs) Like, it's a complete waste of time. But, of course, it wasn't really about the fact that our house needed one more bookshelf in it, right? It was about the relationship that was growing between me and my dad as we worked on this project. And he was like, hold this, and I'm going to go over there and do important things. Uh, But that's sort of the image that I always have in my mind of God inviting us into the creative process. Does God need us in the creative process? No. Are we actually capable of doing anything on our own power that is in any way, like, effective? No. No. Um, but it's not, that's not what it's about. It's about the relationship that we have with God as we create with God, um, as God's children, as God's honored guests in his home, and as his image. So um, there's all kinds of implications for that that I want to pick up next week. Next week, I want to talk about what happens to the temple in the New Testament because there's some really interesting things that happen. I want to talk about Jesus and his relationship to the temple. And I really want to talk a lot about uh, some of the implications we have for today, particularly with um, ideas of body and uh, stuff like that, cleanness and uncleanness and holiness and unholiness and stuff like that. So uh, I give you a couple of good homework questions. I hope they're good. They might be. Uh, they're not too hard. I believe in you guys. 
Um, first of all, read Ruth 4. You can actually read all of Ruth. It's only four chapters long. It's fairly short, uh, and it, it's a good story. So, uh, But particularly where the city gate comes into play is in chapter 4. You really start to get a sense of the, the way that the, the whole Beit Av thing and the city gate and all of that worked, and, and hopefully it's a little bit clearer to you uh, than it was before. And then also, uh, I really this is one you'll want to spend a little bit of time on. That's Leviticus 16. Uh, Leviticus 16 is the Day of Atonement. This was a national worship ritual. It was the day that they atoned for their sin. Uh, This is where the idea of the scapegoat comes from, if any of you have ever read this. But uh, work through that. Again, you're going to want to probably read it a couple times because it's weird because it's Leviticus. But read it a couple times. And then really just think through some of these ideas of cleanness and uncleanness, holiness and unholiness, you know, the, the temple as world and as nation and as person, how all those, all those ideas are kind of smashed together in, in the symbol of the temple. And just see, see what you can make out of that passage. Okay, there's a lot of interesting things going on in that, in that ritual. Uh, and then finally, consider the purity laws surrounding the temple, particularly, probably most of you have heard before, right? If you are... Uh, well, and I mean, how we talked about this tonight. If you as a person are blemished, and what that means is, you know, you have an extra toe, or you're missing a limb, or you have some sort of physical or mental handicap, right? If you're blemished, then you were excluded from the temple. Okay? And I just want you to, I want you to spend a little bit of time thinking about the implications of that in this worldview. And maybe how if you were a disabled person, or if you are the parent or the child of a disabled person, um, how that would affect your family, okay? Because we're going to spend a little bit of time talking next week about uh, disability and body and where all that goes in uh, the New Testament and in our world today and in the church today. So it should be interesting, I hope, and helpful. So good. Uh, we, have a f- we have a few minutes left, actually, surprisingly. Uh, are there anything that you guys want some clarification or you want to add a comment or some other cool observation or anything on? Anything that I totally blew past that I should have slowed down on? I like your observation that we are on the outside of that culture looking in and it all seems strange. I used to think, oh, that's, that's a tough set of rules and laws. But realistically, we're probably as bad or worse today. <laughs> Um, you know, please and thank you. Learning common courtesies, um, tax code. <laughs> oh, man. Right? Um, yeah, you can turn left on a red light if you're on a one-way street. Turning to a one-way street, you know, part of the right on red rule. Yeah. Um, so good. Yeah, very good. It's a society. Mm-hmm. It, it really is, and everyone's everyone's culture is weird as long as you're not from it, right? Then, and once you're in it, it's totally normal. And how does anyone ever operate any differently? So, but, it, but it's the rules. Of, it's it's how the society works. Yeah. I mean, the, yeah. This is how you get along. When when you drive on the left side of the street in some other country, that is totally weird. But it works. It works. We yeah. somehow get by. Good. Good. Any other thoughts, observations, final comments? We don't have to stay too late. I can pray and dismiss us, and that's okay too. All right, well, let's do that. Let's pray together then. God, we're thankful for uh, this opportunity that we have together and to consider uh, the work that you have done in our history. Uh, We're thankful for this opportunity we've had to gaze into uh, the ancient Israelite culture and and see that even though their, uh, their world looked very different to them, 
it was still your world ultimately and and we can find some parallels and some similarities so as we go out this week help us to think about what it means to live in your world according to your rules and what it means to to be pictures of you in this world to function as faithful images of who you are that that people around us who do not know you would come to know you through us uh, we recognize that as that is a high call and a high challenge um, but we believe through the power of your holy spirit you make us more than conquerors and more than able to rise to that challenge so thank you for uh, thank you for inviting us to be honored guests in your home thank you for calling us your children and thank you for giving us every good and perfect gift We pray all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus.